You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. I am Dr. Candace Morello, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. Pharmacogenomics is a rapidly growing area of research that has the potential to impact the practice of medicine. Will we see huge advances in the area of personalized therapies for diabetes? Joining us to talk about the potential role of pharmacogenomics in diabetes therapy is Assistant Professor of Clinical Pharmacy at UCSD Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in La Jolla, California, Dr. Joseph Ma. Dr. Ma, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. It seems that lately there's been so much talk about genetics, genomics. We'd really like for you to talk today about what is pharmacogenomics? What is pharmacogenetics? And could you explain to us what the differences are between the terminologies? Yes. Well, pharmacogenetics is the study of the genetic causes of individual variations in drug response. In contrast, pharmacogenomics more broadly involves genome-wide analysis of the genetic determinant of drug efficacy and toxicity. Now, both terms are used interchangeably in the medical literature, but for purposes of this discussion, the preferred term will be pharmacogenomics. Okay, and how is pharmacogenomics being applied today in medicine? Pharmacogenomics can be applied for select medications with the goal of optimizing drug therapy. Now, what we mean by optimizing drug therapy is either by maximizing efficacy, minimizing toxicity, minimizing pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic variability, or possibly avoiding unnecessary treatment. We currently have examples of how pharmacogenomics affects certain therapies and diseases, including some therapies for cancer and in infectious diseases. In other instances, pharmacogenomics applicability is also observed in the use of novel technologies such as genetic tests and or genotyping methods. There are commercially available genetic tests that provide information in an individual's enzyme metabolic capacity based on their genotype. Furthermore, pharmacogenomics is also applied in areas of drug development. In some cases, you may be able to stratify specific patient populations. A patient's genotype may be an inclusion or exclusion criteria for participation in a clinical trial studying an investigational drug. Well, what does this mean to people with diabetes? Well, earlier studies examined the impact of drug transporter pharmacogenomics with regards to metformin pharmacokinetics. They determined a potential genetic basis to account for differences in how an individual responds to metformin therapy. Recall, pharmacokinetics can be viewed as what the body does to the drug via processes of absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. Metformin is a substrate for the organic cation transporter, or OCT1, which is present in the human liver. The underlying hypothesis is that specific genetic polymorphisms of OCT1 result in decreased uptake of metformin into the liver, thus potentially altering the effect of metformin in reducing hepatic glucose production. There were several healthy subject studies which provided supportive evidence of this hypothesis as differences in metformin pharmacokinetics 
based on an individual's OCT1 genotype were reported. Essentially, higher amounts of metformin were observed in the blood, which is assumed to correlate with lower amounts of metformin in the liver. So less active metformin working in the liver. Now, tell us about two recent studies that examine the effect of an individual's genetics on how this may impact metformin response. Well, in contrast to our earlier discussions of studies in healthy subjects, a recent prospective population-based cohort study was done in patients with diabetes. Now, the objective of the study was to examine the impact of OCT1 genetic polymorphisms on hemoglobin A1C levels in patients who initiated metformin therapy. 102 Caucasian patients were included in the study, average age of 77 years, a BMI of 28, and an average hemoglobin A1C of 8.3%. After starting metformin therapy in patients with a specific polymorphism of OCT1, in the study it was titled RS622342, the average change in hemoglobin A1C was less compared to individuals who did not have the specific OCT1 genetic polymorphism. After adjusting for covariates such as age and gender, the mean difference in hemoglobin A1C was 0.29 to 0.58% less compared to patients who did not have this polymorphism. Although the decrease was rather low, this study provides some insight into the clinical relevance in predicting the glucose-lowering effect of metformin in patients with diabetes. But it's important to note that conflicting data exists whereby a lack of association between OCT1 polymorphisms and metformin response has been reported. The GO-DART study was a large population-based study in over 1,500 patients that examined two specific OCT1 polymorphisms, both of which result in a loss of function for OCT1 on metformin response. Patients with type 2 diabetes were stratified into two groups, treatment naive, whereby they received no drug therapy for diabetes for at least six months prior to, st to starting metformin, and treatment stable, whereby patients were on oral hypoglycemic agents for at least six months before starting metformin. Based on regression analyses, the OCT1 genotype did not affect short-term and mid-term hemoglobin A1C reduction, did not affect reaching the, tar the target treatment of hemoglobin A1C of less than 7%, and did not affect the rate of metformin monotherapy failure. Briefly, how do we explain why there are conflicting studies in the contribution of OCT1 pharmacogenomics in regards to glycemic response to metformin? Well, one major difference between studies were the types of OCT1 polymorphisms evaluated. There are at least 12 different polymorphisms that exist for OCT1. Different OCT1 polymorphisms were determined in both studies. Additionally, there is speculation that the non-hepatic actions of metformin can confound study findings. Metformin has been reported to increase non-insulin-mediated glucose clearance and decrease glucose intestinal absorption. Since both studies did not obtain metformin plasma concentrations, one cannot conclusively determine the role of the non-hepatic actions of metformin. Although these studies are conflicting and potentially provide more confusion than answers, one can at least speculate that metformin response is polygenic and that other non-genetic factors are involved. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Candice Morello, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joseph Ma. We are discussing pharmacogenomics and diabetes therapy. 
Dr. Ma, what have been more recent advances in pharmacogenomics that may have an impact on diabetes? A landmark paper published in 2006 first demonstrated an association between risk of type 2 diabetes and a genetic polymorphism of transcription factor 7 like 2 or TCF7L2. The results of the study were reproduced from numerous studies involving different ethnic groups. In summary, the TCF7L2 gene is associated with a 1.5 to 2-fold increased risk of type 2 diabetes. TCF7L2 is a transcription factor that is part of the Wnt signaling pathway. This signaling pathway is involved in various physiological processes, including the development of the pancreas and islets during embryonic growth. Not only is TCF7L2 expressed in human pancreatic islets, but TCF7L2 may also stimulate beta cell proliferation and production of the incretin hormone glucagon-like peptide 1 in intestinal endocrine cells. Taken together, this suggests that TCF7L2 polymorphisms may affect the function of pancreatic beta cells and the disease itself. Although this is certainly exciting, there are still significant areas of uncertainty that require additional research. At this time, several research groups have not recommended a genetic test for TCF7L2 be implemented due to poor sensitivity and specificity of being a useful clinical test for risk prediction. Well, it sounds like an alphabet soup that we're all going to need to get used to here pretty soon as we talk about and as we see that pharmacogenomics becomes a more important part of our clinical practice. What are the current and future challenges that will need to be addressed in the area of pharmacogenomics? There are several challenges that need to be addressed in this area. These include ethical, economic, and social issues. Although pharmacogenomic testing may yield information that could help make informed decisions about treatment options, concerns exist regarding loss of privacy. It is imperative that selecting patients for pharmacogenomic tests of certain medications be evidence-based to avoid genetic profiling, discrimination, or stigmatization. There are also many unknown issues related to the economics of pharmacogenomic testing. For example, it is not clear whether the patient or the insurance company should pay for the pharmacogenomic test or which tests would be covered. Whether the insurance premium will increase as a result of increased coverage for pharmacogenomic testing and whether test results will lead to unfair risk assessment for coverage are unclear. Social issues derived from pharmacogenomic testing may lead to unequal treatment or undesirable outcomes such as health disparities, especially if one group of patients receives coverage for pharmacogenomic testing and others do not. Share with us your recent teaming up with the CDC on an educational grant that focuses on providing education to healthcare professionals and students regarding pharmacogenomics. There appears to be a gap between healthcare providers' knowledge and the expectations of patients regarding pharmacogenomic testing. While patients may have high expectations from their healthcare provider to explain and interpret results of pharmacogenomic testing, providers are reluctant to provide pharmacogenomic testing services for various reasons. In order to meet the expectations of patients, faculty at the UCSD Skagg School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences have developed an education campaign geared toward healthcare providers and students to bridge the gap between the science of pharmacogenomics and clinical practice. The objective of the Pharmacogenomics Education Program, or PharmGenEd, is to increase awareness about current knowledge of the validity and utility of pharmacogenomic tests 
and their potential clinical implications. The program aims to reach 100,000 healthcare professionals through collaboration with healthcare organizations, schools or colleges, pharmacogenomics experts, and clinicians willing to be trained and to train others. Additional information of this CDC-funded project can be found on our website at www.pharmacogenomics.ucsd.edu. I would like to thank our guest, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pharmacy at UCSD Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in La Jolla, California, Dr. Joe Ma. Dr. Ma, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. You're welcome, and thank you for having me as a guest. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.